What is up? Welcome to Fondling Cardboard. I'm your host, Mike Lacusta, aka the Golf Card Collector. I've been collecting cards for over 25 years, and I run Facebook's largest golf cards and memorabilia group. Today, you'll hear from our community's leading vintage enthusiast, John Morton, to get to know the key golfers from the pre-war era, their legacies, and which cards to look out for. You'll find out why some dominant golfers from that time are overshadowed by others, why Bobby Jones' rookie card is not his actual rookie card, and most importantly, we will reveal the holy grail of vintage golf cards. And finally, we'll share some advice on how to get into vintage collecting, specifically with two secrets to access thousands of hidden cards on eBay, so you'll want to stick around until the end. This is seriously my favorite episode so far, and I know I teased a lot of great things, but if there's one thing that you take away from this episode, it's to reflect on why you're in this hobby, and how to frame your why into building a personal collection that you will be personally passionate about. Let's get into the interview. You're a guy that I'm really pumped to talk to because um, I see you are very active in the Golf Cards and Memorabilia Facebook group, and you have a very particular niche that you're quite knowledgeable about that we're going to talk about today, which is vintage golf cards. So why don't we kick off by you just sharing a little bit about yourself and how you got into vintage golf cards? Absolutely. Absolutely. I appreciate you having me on. And uh, yeah, so so it is very much a, a unique niche, you know, golf collecting in general. But then the the sub niche that, that I collect in is is even smaller. Uh, and that is, uh, you know, pre-war golf carts. And for, for anybody that may be listening to, to this that, that isn't as familiar with the, the vintage and uh, kind of earlier card uh, collecting hobby, anytime somebody talks about pre-war, uh, it's pre-World War II. Uh, so really, you know, 1942 to 1945 and before. Uh, so a vast majority of, of what I collect is golf cards that are specifically from before World War II. Um, so again, like you said, uh, pretty unique niche. So what is it about pre-World War II um, that is special about golf cards and why do they hold such a unique place in collecting? Yeah, so... I, for, for me personally, uh, it's kind of a, the, the perfect summation of, of kind of my background and, and my life. I used to work in the golf industry. Uh, I was a PGA club professional for about 10 years. Uh, but then um, beyond that, I also grew up in the northeast part of the United States, uh, just outside of Philadelphia, where uh, U.S. history, American history is, is very prevalent. So I, I've always been fascinated by American history kind of by itself. But then with my career in the golf industry, it kind of both of those things merged together at, at some point in my, my uh, you know, 20s where I realized, well, there's there's this whole background of the history of the game that uh, exists. And that just took me down a number of different rabbit holes. When I think about the, the pre-World War II golf card collecting, uh, there's there's a lot of different subcategories within it that, that you know, we'll, we'll get into today. Uh, but for me, it's, it's about appreciating the history of, of where golf came from, how it got to be what it is today, uh, and how it evolved over time, but more specifically looking at the early days, uh, and how the game evolved and, and matching that up with, you know, card collecting. Well, that, that's an awesome background and it's fun when you narrow down into a particular niche. And I remember that you had actually picked up a historical document with one of the U.S. 
founding fathers uh, autographs on it. And that kind of stuff, it fascinates me from a distance. I, I'm not uh, passionate about that. I mean, my country's only, I think, 151 years old, so we don't have that same richness. Um, but but obviously, you're, you're gravitated towards that historical side of collecting. So what is it about history that that fascinates you? And, you know, I specifically about that document as well as golf at large. What attracts me to kind of historical collecting and, and things of that nature, whether it's golf or non-golf, um, you know, to your point about what, what I had picked up recently, uh, it's it's having a deeper understanding of where we came from and, and you know, how we got to where we are today as as a person, uh, as a society, as a culture, as as a country, as a sport, uh, there's so many different, you know, so many different ways that, that you can think about it. And I just, I love thinking about how, you know, somebody that lived 100, 150, 200 plus years ago, and the decisions they made, made an impact on me. Hmm. And how, you know, it's just, it's crazy to think about that when you really start to, you know, let your mind think about and have that sink in that, you know, old Tom Morris, one of the, one of the, you know, legends of the game, the, the grandfather of, of golf or the father of modern golf, if you want to think about him that way, you know, uh, he's one of five or six individuals that I consider personally to have had a significant impact on my life. And he lived 150 years ago. Uh, you know, he died uh, almost 120 years ago. Uh, so it's just, you know, pulling all of that together and appreciating what has happened in our society and in our world to get to this point. That's, that's what I love about it. By the way, the, the document that you referenced for anybody watching, uh, what Mike had mentioned, uh, I, a couple months back had been fortunate to, uh, acquire a signed document from 1795 that had George Washington's signature on it. So the first president of the United States. Uh, and again, what I mentioned earlier about having grown up in Philadelphia, American history, the founding of the United States being very prevalent around that that region, uh, that was something I'd always dreamt of of owning, uh, was something tied to George Washington's life. So I'm, I'm really, really thankful, really, really privileged to, uh, to to own that now. Yeah, John, that's really, really cool. Let's circle back to golf because you mentioned Tom Morris and alluded to uh, four or five others, uh, big names from that era who were notable. So who are some of those golfers uh, featured on those pre-war cards and why were they significant in the sports history? There's four or five, six different names uh, that, that really are the, the biggest legends in the game of golf when it comes to pre-World War II. Um, there have been a couple, obviously, big names since World War II, uh, you know, for, for if you want to think about a Mount Rushmore of golf. But Pre-World War II, there's, there's a handful of names in particular, old Tom Morris being one of them, his son, young Tom Morris uh, being another. You also have very, very household common names like Bobby Jones and Walter Hagen. But then there's, there's also names like Harry Varden and Gene Sarazen and Sam Snead that are very popular and well-known in the golf, uh, you know, golf circles and golf community. But may not necessarily be as well known uh, outside of the game of golf specifically, but those handful of names really, that's when they play, that's, that's when they were in their heyday. Uh, and when it comes to, to pre-war card, uh, golf card collecting, um, their, their cards are where the, the, the 
where the biggest values are, but also where the, I personally think some of the most beautiful artistry is. Well, the artistry and the visual of cards themselves is one of the things that I get most excited about. So I definitely want to go down that rabbit hole a little bit. Um, But I want to circle back to some of those names you mentioned, because as you said, uh, being somebody who is passionate about golf and golf history and golf collectibles, I recognize all those names. But even as somebody who's deep in the hobby, um, I don't necessarily know why they're famous and what all of their accomplishments were. So I don't necessarily need you to give a bio of each of the guys, but what are some of the kind of biggest um, vintage storylines, so to speak? Yeah, so with uh, I'll give you kind of one or two sentences for for each of those big names that, that I mentioned. Uh, with old Tom Morris, obviously he's the, as I mentioned earlier, kind of the father of, of modern golf, if you want to think of it that way. He was the the first greenkeeper at uh, at St Andrews when it kind of was was building up and and becoming a, a golf course uh, as a town and as a as a course. Um, but old Tom Morris was also instrumental in the founding of the Open Championship uh, or the British Open for for us Americans. Uh, so w- with old Tom Morris in particular and his son, young Tom Morris, uh, they were very instrumental, especially before before 1900. Yes, we have pre-World War II uh, kind of as as the, the overarching, uh, you know, timeline. But for those names in particular, it's pre-1900. Um, old Tom Morris was in his playing heyday in the 18th 50s, 1860s, and, and early 1870s. His son, young Tom Morris, was the 1870s into the early 1880s before he tragically passed away at, at the age of 25. Um, so you've got a couple names there that were very instrumental in growing the game and getting it to a point where it could become globalized. And I say that specifically because up to that point, up until about, 12, uh, about 1900, um, golf was still very much compartmentalized in the UK, in Great Britain and Ireland. It had not expanded very much outside of those islands. But it's because of what those guys did that golf was able to grow and get to a point where golfers like uh, golfers like Willie Park Jr. and um, uh, Harry Varden could all of a sudden expand the game beyond Great Britain and Ireland and take it to the United States, take it to continental Europe and turn it into a true global game. So with old Tom Morris, young Tom Morris, you've got before 1900 building the game up with guys like Harry Varden. That's when golf expanded to the rest of the world. And it's because of Harry Varden that it expanded and globalized and got to a point where you had a lot more majors, a lot more traveling uh, you know from continent to continent to play in these big tournaments and that's where the growth began okay Uh, that's interesting i didn't realize that young tom morris passed away tragically at a young age was it a uh, what kind of accident was it uh so his wife had um passed away during childbirth uh his wife and his son had passed away um because his wife had, had given birth and it was only a couple months later, I don't remember exactly how quickly, but only a couple months later that he passed away. Um, and and the, the common kind of saying, common understanding is that uh, he died of a broken heart. Uh, mm-hmm. He was only 25 at the time. That was his, uh, you know, firstborn uh, son, first child. 
Uh, so Toulouse's son and his wife in the same day, um, it, it's, it's commonly said that, that he died of a broken heart. I see. Um, yeah, and that is tragic. Uh, I have two sons. And if we had lived in that era, I would have probably been in his shoes, you know, without getting too personal here and going into too many details. Yeah. I know I, I, I'm pretty certain that my wife would have passed away in childbirth if we didn't have modern medicine and doctors to look after her. Wow. Um, you know, we're all blessed to live when we do. You mentioned a few other names, Ben Hogan, Gene Sarazen, our couple. I know Ben Hogan, mm-hmm. I've seen his his book and uh, he was very popular for his unique swing and um, kind of instructing others on how to, to swing the golf club, as well as his accomplishments on the course. Uh, but Gene Sarazen is somebody that um, if you're outside of our world, you never hear about him. So I'm curious why he was famous and what his story was. Yeah, with, with Gene Sarazen and, and Sam Snead, both, again, big legends of the game, won lots of major championships, uh, you know, in the 30s and, and 40s. Um, their, their names, they don't get, in, in my opinion, this is all just, you know, me speaking with, with my opinion here. I don't believe they get the same notoriety as the Bobby Joneses and the Walter Hagens do on the earlier side uh, or the Ben Hogans do on the later side of their specific careers, Gene Sarazen and, and uh, you know, Sam Snead, Byron Nelson kind of being in a similar category here, uh, partially because of just the fact that in their heyday, being the 30s and 40s, kind of late 30s and 40s, that's when the, the world was, was in a lot of turmoil. You had World War II that was just starting to bubble up. So, you know, there were quite a few years there in what would have been their prime when they would have probably doubled the number of major championships that they would have won. Uh, but big names in growing the game of golf here in the United States, specifically for those three in particular, Sarazen, Sneed, and Nelson, uh, kind of on the, the tail end of Bobby Jones's and Walter Hagen's career. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's the Bobby Jones's and Walter Hagen's that really helped, you know, golf had, had been firmly planted in the United States, but it's those guys that really grew it uh, and got it to a point where it could become a nationwide sport and, and phenomenon. Um, but with, with Sarazen's, uh, Nelson and Sneed kind of, Lots of major championships, lots of impact on the game, but that timing just was unfortunate in my mind, in my opinion, uh, just being in the 30s and 40s. Bobby Jones is obviously a legendary name. Um, is he most mm-hmm. famous for uh, his role at East Lake and also for starting the um, the Masters? Spot on. Um, and specifically what I'd say in terms of Bobby Jones and, and his, his notoriety is you know, founding of Augusta National and founding of the Masters, uh, you know, first and foremost, that's what probably uh, a majority of Americans would know him for. Uh, but the other thing specifically with golfers is that he was the first and only golfer to win a true Grand Slam, all four majors in the same year, uh, back in 1930. That hasn't been done again since. Uh, and granted, some will say, well, Tiger Woods did it. Yes, it was four majors consecutively, wasn't the same year. Some might say, well, they were different majors that Bobby Jones played versus, you know, the majors that, that modern players play. But regardless, there were four majors then, there, were, there are four majors now, and Bobby Jones is the only individual to ever win all four in the same year, and that was 1930. Wow. Okay. 
Well, hey, let's uh, let's shift to the cards themselves without shying away from any details because the colors, the processes, the materials, all that kind of stuff is just right up my alley. Um, what like can you tell me? Uh, walk us through a little bit of the types of cards used during that era: um, tobacco, gum, um, anything else, postcards, die cuts, cut out of a cereal box, magazines, whatever, and what kind of sets yeah. them apart golf cards in particular pre-war a vast majority of it was tobacco based out of the uk just because that's where the that's where the game was still most prevalent at that time when we talk about the 19 teens 1920s 1930s um that yes golf was exploding here in the states uh but most of it was tobacco you did have some gum cards you know some golfers were featured in you know, the, the famous 1933 Sport King set, uh, U.S. Carmel set in 1932. Uh, so you did have some there kind of sprinkled in here in the States uh, from a from a, a non-tobacco standpoint. Uh, there were also quite a few, especially bigger names like Bobby Jones, Walter Hagen, Gene Sarazen, uh, in uh, that were featured in strip cards, uh, which I'll, I'll show a couple here uh, shortly in terms of strip cards and kind of what makes them unique. Um, so you've got, got a little bit of, of everything, but, uh, for me personally, my absolute favorite fun fact about golf cards, all golf cards, pre-war and, and, you know, modern is that golf is one of only two sports that had cards made in every decade from now going all the way back to the 1870s. Wow. I had no idea. The only other sport that that applies to. Wow, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, so, so there there are golf cards that were made in every decade. Yeah. Well, if if Upper Deck is going to be the company that continues Sorry, to make go golf cards going forward, um, I think that we might break that <laughs> that trend because uh, they're doing such a poor job with their golf releases. Um, <laughs> you mentioned, you know, Sport King gum, and I believe caramel something or other, which I assume is also mm -hmm. a, a candy of some type. Um, what the other one that really caught my ear though, was strip cards. So can you tell me what sets them apart? How are they made? Are they printed the same way that other types of cards would be? Are they cut by hand? Like, tell me a little bit about, you know, how these cards are made. Yeah. So they're, they're, they're not made the same way as like standard tobacco cards are. Uh, but, uh, strip cards were made literally in like a, a full strip or in a full sheet. Uh, with a bunch of different cards, and they would they were typically just hand cut with scissors uh, at, at the time uh, when they were made, usually inserted into magazines or newspapers, things of that nature. Uh, so it, they're very unique in terms of their sizing because none of them are the same. <laughs> uh, most grading card uh, card grading companies uh, don't actually give numerical grades uh, today, at least. Maybe they originally did back when they first found, were founded, but uh, today, most don't give numerical grades to strip cards of any sport of any kind because the sizing wasn't necessarily standardized because it was literally just, you know, a giant puzzle and just somebody would take scissors and, and cut cut the strips apart and cut them into to small cards and small little, uh, you know, about the size of a, a typical tobacco card. Um, but the, one of the examples that, that I, I set aside to, to show you uh, is actually... Um, a Bobby Jones strip card. Beautiful. From 
1925 to 1931 W590 uh, strip card sets. Um, this is this was a, a unique set. Uh, Walter Hagen was also in this set. So was uh, Gene Sarazen, uh, Willie McFarland, a couple other golfers, Glenna Collette. Uh, a female golfer from from that time. So there were quite a few other golfers in it, but it was a multi-sport set made across six years. Lots of baseball players in this set, Babe Ruth, Ty Cobb. Uh, so you've got a lot of big names across sports and even non-sports in this same strip card set. Um, I personally, because uh, the W590s started to be made in 1925, which was a year before Bobby Jones's um, most commonly referred to rookie card in 1926. I tend to consider this his rookie card over the 1926 card, even though these were made over a few years, uh, you know, a multi-year span. Uh, but unique sizing uh, and and mostly kind of a, a thicker cardboard than um, than uh, standard tobacco cards. Okay. Uh, so the thicker sizing would be like the Panini Spectra of ultra modern cards compared to the Prism. So you hit on something really important because if you consider that to be Bobby Jones' rookie card as opposed to the more common, uh, commonly considered 1926 Lambert and Sons, correct me if I got that name wrong. Um, Lambert and Butler, yeah. Lambert and Butler, sorry. So that that's an important uh, distinction. Um, and I think I know the answer to the question I'm about to ask, but is there any way to tell within that range of 1925 to 1931 to tell if your card was made in a particular year? Yeah, that, that's a good question. And the the 1926 uh, Lambert and Butler, for, for anybody curious, uh, kind of a, a pretty pretty iconic image of, of Bobby Jones there. Uh, there you go. I like that. Same, same photo in the, the 1927 Churchman set that you're holding. I, I love it. When I bought this, I thought it was the 1926. You let me know that it was still a good buy, so that made me feel a little better. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. It's it's still a phenomenal card from from that set. Um, but yeah, so so to your question uh, of can you tell the the you know what year it was printed? Um, the short answer is no. Uh, however, the, the way I look at it is there were there were a half a dozen or so golfers that were featured in that overarching W590 set. Uh, and each of those golfers had a description underneath the name. Uh, so Bobby Jones, if I can get it close enough, you can see he is identified as the national amateur golf champion on the bottom of the, the card there. Uh, so each golfer had some type of title or you know description under their name. So what was interesting was with Gene Sarazen, who is also in this same set, uh, he was referred to, Bobby Jones referred to as the National Amateur Golf Champion. Gene Sarazen's descriptor underneath his name was ex-National Open Champion, which was National Open was what the U.S. Open was referred to back then. He won the U.S. Open in 1922. So he was a former U.S. Open champion at the time. So the way that I look at that description as well as the other descriptions of golfers, Walter Hagen, Willie, Willie McFarlane, Glenna Collette, and the titles that they won in their careers, that leads me to personally believe that these were all, all the golfers were made around the same time or at the same time, probably in the same uh, strip series. And I personally believe it was in 1925. You believe that 
all of the golfers were printed in the first year because of the designation or the title given to these players, the only alternative would be mm-hmm. they continued printing those golfers with those designations, even though they had lost them or they had changed in subsequent years. Exactly. Interesting. Exactly. Yes. Yes. They absolutely could have just continued printing them. But the way I look at it is, is this set, I personally believe uh, was, was made either in 25 or 26. And either way, it would make this, this Bobby Jones card, either his rookie or his co-rookie, if you want to talk about two in the same year. Um, but the, the reason that I love mine in particular, uh, and I, I kind of lobby for it, if you will, personally, is because this W590 of Bobby Jones, there's only about 30 that have ever been graded. Close to 400 of his Lambert and Butler that have been graded. Wow. So even if they were made in the same year, it's almost tenfold less copies that are known of his W590, making it exponentially rare. With regards to these uh, strip cards, um, I've heard from you actually uh, refer to certain ones as a thick cut versus a thin cut or something of that nature. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, what those designations mean? Or perhaps am I referring to um, a different type of card? Uh, a different set, different set. I know what you're talking about. Uh, that's the, the 1900 Copes golfers set. I'll take a half step backwards here and just say, generally speaking with golf cards, what makes them unique as a sport is that there aren't that many golf dedicated sets that were ever made. There are a lot of golf cards across a lot of multi-sport, non-sport kind of miscellaneous card sets and tobacco card sets that were made in between 1900 and 1945. Uh, but there weren't that many, probably only 12 to 15, if I had to kind of estimate a number, total golf dedicated sets before World War II. And the set that you're referring to, the, the Copes Golfers set, uh, it's by far the most iconic, the most notable um, golf card set ever made. It was also the first golf dedicated set ever made. Uh, and what makes it unique beyond, even beyond the fact that it was the first golf dedicated set is that it contains quite a few very, very famous rookie cards in it, including the truest holy grail uh, in golf card collecting, and that is old Tom Morris's rookie card. It also, the set also contains his son, young Tom Morris, uh, as well as several other golfers, J.H. Taylor. There's four or five other golfers in that same set out of a set of 50. Um, but old Tom Morris being the, the most notable name and the, the truest holy grail within that set in particular. If that old Tom Morris rookie card is considered the holy grail, I'd like to pause and focus in on that one a little bit. Could you paint mm-hmm. a picture of that card and you know describe it and the meaning behind it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so the Copes golfer said uh, across the whole set, and it was 50 cards that, that were in it. Um, as I said, there were a handful of golfers that, that actual golfers uh, that, that were featured in it, but the set, the balance of the set contained other golfing terms and other things just within the sport. Um, you know, a bunker shot, a caddy, things like that, that, that are common terms. Uh, but 
the, the entire set was done off of a, basically a freehand artist uh, that, that created drawings for these cards. And here is, so I'll show you my old Tom Morris rookie here, uh, if I can get the light right. Beauty. So it's, it, it's not a character, it's not a cartoon, but it was done by an artist in terms of the drawing itself. Uh, you've got the, the drawing of the full individual, and then at the bottom, Tom Morris, card number two in the set. And the phrasing there for him is that he is the, the GOM of golf, which is the grand old man. It was kind of his, his uh, nickname back at that time. Uh, old Tom Morris passed away in 1908, but up until that time, uh, late in his life, he was referred to as the grand old man of golf. So uh, the, the caption on his rookie card is the, the GOM of, of golf. Wow. I love that, that title. I hope that one day, John, yourself and me can become the grand old men of something or another. Um, of something. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's awesome. Absolutely. So can you describe, uh, so you showed that card, but for listeners on Spotify, Google, uh, Apple podcasts who aren't watching this video, um, can you, can you describe the card a little bit? Um, maybe talk about your personal card, the grade, the condition, the eye appeal, um, other than it being the rookie card of the great old man, you know, what else draws you to that card? Yeah. So it's, it's a, a, an interesting drawing of old Tom Morris. It was a drawing that was based off of a portrait that was, um, uh, or, uh, not a portrait, excuse me, a photograph that was taken of him and his son together, uh, in the 1870s. And, the 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 pose that he has he's holding a golf club in his right hand he's got his left hand in in his uh, coat pocket uh, wearing several layers like most people in Scotland have to do <laughs> pretty much year round uh, and and it's it's depicting old Tom Morris late in his life so he's got uh, he's got his his long white beard on uh, and what I personally love about it is the the kind of the uh, the Easter egg in this card uh, is that in the background, you see, and, and for those that are watching this on YouTube, I'll hold it up again. In the background of the card, you can see kind of a, a, a little structure. It, it almost looks like two spires, uh, if you will. And that is actually the remnants of the um, ruins of St. Andrew's Cathedral in the town of St. Andrew's. Uh, so the card, the image was drawn as if old Tom Morris is at the old course at St. Andrews, and you can see the cathedral ruins in the background, because when you're standing at the old course, specifically on holes, on the first few holes, 1, 2, 17, or 18, you can see the ruins of that church in the background uh, over off in the distance. So I love the fact that whoever actually drew this card took the time to pay homage to the town in the background there uh but then the the final piece to this puzzle that that I, I i just find fascinating is that uh this card these cards this set was made in 1900 uh so old tom morris was still alive when this set was made he passed away in 1908 and upon his passing he was buried in the cemetery of those cathedral ruins in saint andrews so it's it kind of foretold that that story of of where uh you know those in St Andrews uh tend to tend to go you know after their passing 
but I just, I love the fact that the artist took the time to include that in this card. Wow. No, I think that's, that's a phenomenal job, John, describing the card and, and its meaning and that hidden egg. Um, I'll ask you a little bit about that hidden egg. So is that uh, cathedral in the background or the ruins of the cathedral? Um, were those ruins still there at the time that the artist was drawing this or were they imagining this thing? And um, I guess, uh, fast forwarding to present day, are those ruins still there? Uh, yes and yes. So the ruins have been there for hundreds of years. This was a church that, that was built back in the, the um, I want to say 13 or 1400s, if I remember correctly. Uh, and, and those that listen to this online and correct me, you know, don't, don't get mad at me, but somewhere, you know, five, six, 700 years ago. Uh, so the, the ruins have been there for a very long time. Uh, and they are still standing today, uh, same exact visual as they were 120 years ago, 123 years ago when the, the card was drawn. Wow. That's that's really cool. Um, and for those listening, uh, John has had the pleasure of going to the old course. Um, John has also had the luxury of going to some other big tournaments like the Masters and whatnot. So uh, I was uh, telling him how jealous I am of some of that. Um, and that's pretty neat that you have that personal attachment having been there in person and seen the scenery where the, the greats have been. Um, and one, one last thing I'll say about this particular rookie card, yep. you mentioned it's his rookie card. Uh, it's from his quote unquote playing days. He was alive. And uh, it's, it's kind of funny because that is probably the most haggard old looking rookie that exists. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you're you're absolutely right. It's it's fascinating, you know how the how the phrase rookie card uh, can be can be taken. Um, but at the end of the day, it's you know the first card that was ever made featuring that individual. The, the way I view it. Um, so yeah, it's it's a, a fascinating card, fascinating set. Like I said, it also features his son, young Tom Morris or Tom, Tommy Morris Jr. Um, the the neat story that I'll tell you real quick, uh, and I'll share some photos on my on my Twitter account. Uh, after today, uh, as a kind of a, a fresh reminder for anybody that's curious about these photos, but um, the the old Tom Mars rookie card that I just showed is a PSA four that I just recently acquired. Um, last year, uh, I had the opportunity to go to, uh, as you said, to go to the old course, go to the 150th Open at St Andrews uh, with my family, with my wife, both my parents and my brother, and. I, I had a thought about a week before that trip that, that I got really excited about and I ended up uh, executing, I feel like, pretty well. Uh, I brought the old Tom Morris and young Tom Morris rookie card that I had at the time, which was an SGC2 and an SGC or an SGC3 of the old Tom and SGC2 of the young Tom, brought them with me on the trip, uh, and I took some pictures uh, all around the town of St. Andrews, including on the 18th fairway at St. Andrews, including in front of old Tom's house. Uh, along the 18th fairway uh, at his childhood house, uh, as well as uh, a photo of both of those cards at their headstones, because father and son are buried next to each other at the cemetery in town. Uh, so it was just kind of a, a last minute thought that I had, last minute idea, and uh, it worked out pretty well being able to, to bring those pieces of history uh, and, and that, that cardboard back to, you know, the, the place where those individuals originated from uh, and kind of tie those two pieces of history together. So 
that was a, a really neat, uh, really neat experience to be able to do that together. That is incredible. And what I love about that story is that we can get wrapped up in this hobby, uh, chasing cards on eBay, uh, following our watch lists, uh, posting pictures of just the card on our Instagram and Facebook pages. But what really matters to me anyways is personal connection, your own anecdotes and attachment to that artifact because it's truly an artifact of history. Uh, the cards you're describing are over 100 years old. And so for you to hold that card, bring it back to its home country where it was made a century ago or, or, or longer and to have that in the physical spaces where those greats of the game stood and played lived and died is just like i said it's giving me shivers and and uh that's i think that's what this hobby is all about yeah it's uh like i like i said at the at the very beginning of of our our discussion today uh for me the the history of the game uh and and bringing that history to life and and understanding where we came from and and where the game came from uh it just it, it like you said, it gives me chills uh, when, when I when I think about it, when I read about it, when I talk about it with with anybody uh, who's who's willing to to you know geek out with me over golf history. Uh, it's it's a, a a fun fun thing to do. So I absolutely love it. Well, John, you and I are going to geek out about golf cards. I'm sure for many years to come. Um, the so, so you basically just touched on one of the biggest golf specific sets and the Holy grail of golf. So that's a wonderful place um, for our discussion to kind of start and pivot, I guess, to the other types of golf cards you were talking about, which are through the years, there were famous multi-sport sets that included some of the biggest names. Um, and I wanted to ask you about one in particular, because it's one of my favorite vintage sets for every sport. And that's the 1933 Sport Kings set. Um, so, mm -hmm. uh, so firstly, would you agree with me that that's considered a, a significant set in all of sports cards? And and oh, absolutely. If, and if so, does that translate specifically into golf as well? And what golfers in particular have cards in that very famous set? So, so you're absolutely right. And the, the 1933 Sport King set uh, is is without a doubt one of the most iconic, if not the, the most iconic multi-sport set uh, ever made. Just incredibly beautiful uh, imagery, uh, just absolutely perfect sizing in my mind as well. The colors are so incredibly bright. Uh, you've got a little bit of everything uh, from a sporting standpoint, uh, just from from the most well-known sports of baseball and football and hockey and golf uh, to some very obscure sports. Uh, yeah, it's, it's an absolutely fascinating set. And obviously, to your point, it includes several golfers, three in particular, uh, being Bobby Jones, Walter Hagen, and Gene Sarazen. Uh, those three through from, from 1925 through probably 19, um, 1935, we'll, we'll call it, uh, for U.S.-based sets, those three were the three golfers that were most commonly found, uh, or at least a subset of them, if golfers were going to be featured. Uh, and those three in particular in that set, the Bobby Jones being the most notable golfer, uh, um, just can't, uh, it, 
words can't describe how how beautiful that that card is with the the bright blue background. Yeah, I I really appreciate you saying that because when I was doing the sports card strategy show or the golf card strategy show channel with Paul Hickey from NoOffSeason.com, uh, he we had a couple questions come in during that that podcast. And one of them was about the um, Bobby Jones rookie and whether or not that was a good pickup. And we've already kind of covered that. But the only uh, vintage golf card that I had really ingrained in my mind because I hadn't thought about it much at the time was this 1933 Sport King set. And it's because of the colors. Mm -hmm. It's not black and white. It's vivid. And hopefully you can get good registration on some of these cards. Um, what, What are you looking for if you're picking up one of these cards? So I, generally speaking across the board, I personally have a very unique um, mindset and and uh, approach to acquiring cards and 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 building my personal collection. Uh, this old Tom Morris uh, rookie card, this PSA four that I have, is is truly the only exception uh, to the the strategy that I personally employ, and that is to always downgrade. Wow. It's yeah, you, you raise your eyebrows because most people do because it is that that out of the norm. But I will strategically try to downgrade my cards in my collection, uh, find the most creased, find the most well-loved, the most well-mutilated, find the cards that have been through the most in their lives, in their card lives um, for, for two reasons. One, yes, I love knowing that the card has lived a very full life by itself. And that sounds cheesy to say, but it's true. But secondly, as we've talked about in a couple different ways now, uh, today, I, I collect for the history. I don't necessarily collect for condition personally. Yes, it's nice to, to you know, have a card that, that's in nice condition, but I would rather take that card that's in nice condition, and I've done this countless times, and sell it for X amount of money, take a portion of that money and buy a lower grade, and then use the balance that I made off the original sale and buy another card that I haven't had before, mm-hmm. another pre-war golf card I haven't had before. So I, I tend to, again, 99.9% of the time, that old Tom Marsh rookie is the only exception, uh, I tend to employ that strategy to help expand and grow my collection without having to add additional capital, without having to come out of my own pocket. I'd rather just expand that collection and know that I'm appreciating the history of the cards regardless of their condition. So uh, it's, it's very unique. That is a breath of fresh air, and I feel like we're cut from the same cloth. I walk the line a little bit um, because there are certain types of card in my select my collection that I do like to have in high grade. Uh, but I would say the vast mm-hmm. majority of my collection, uh, it's kind of about volume over the highest end card that I can get. And it's completely contrary to the investment based content that podcasters and sports card influencers are talking about these days, because everybody talks about getting the uh, consolidating your collection, getting the biggest card you can holding things uh, as an investment and for me, um, if you've listened to any of the episodes about my my podcast so far, it's about the the history, my personal connection, having an artifact that represents my past or past of some famous athletes or historical figures that I truly respect and yeah. admire and that we can all learn from. So 
Uh, so that's pretty, that's pretty cool. And I may need to reconsider some of my high grade other, other cards and, um, uh, diverging my collection. Maybe that's how we'll put it. Um, I know you're short on time, so I'll just ask just a couple more questions. I'll circle back to specifically 1933. So if you were to pick up, let's say, uh, Bobby Jones, um, yep. and you're, you're looking for something that's well-loved, uh, perhaps has a wrinkle, a crease, the edges are pretty ratted up. Um, uh, what characteristics are you looking for then? Uh, if I'm looking for characteristics at that point, it's the brightness of the background. That said, in particular, like we talked about, the the the, uh, the, the starkness of that color. It's a bright blue, uh, a, a, a shade or two darker than a baby blue uh, in my mind. Um, it's a very bright, distinct color. Uh, so I always look for the, the, uh, the saturation of that color in particular with the Bobby Jones, uh, or, uh, excuse me, with the Walter Hagen, it's a very bright orange background. Uh, so it's a, it's again, very vivid color that jumps off the card when you find one with good registration. Uh, and then with Gene Sarazen, it is a true baby blue background, uh, in that set as well. So again, all three golfers have very distinct colors that really come off the card and come off the page when you find that that distinct um this, that, that distinct uh, registration we'll finish off i just had a couple questions from listeners for you and then i also want to ask if you have any advice for somebody that wants to get into vintage golf carts so derek Finman on facebook asked a pretty lengthy question he said there's a huge premium for high quality vintage bobby jones cards Harry Varden won the British Open six times. His card values seem to get some respect. James Braid and John Henry Taylor each won the British Open five times. Feels like the vintage golf world limits premium values to only a few historical figures. Do you think that certain great historical players with great accomplishments have been overlooked? And other vintage, other sports vintage cards such as baseball is exclusively American players. Do you think there's a bias towards certain figures like Bobby Jones and Walter Hagen because they were Americans? I think I think that hits the nail on the head. It's yes, some of those earlier figures, the James Braids, the Harry Vardens, the the J. H. Taylors, uh, you know, have have a little bit of of underappreciation to their name in the golf card collecting uh, community. But that's through no fault of their own. I think that's more of the the challenge of the era that they played in, being from you know 1890 to 1910. Uh, Bobby Jones came into his own from a from a playing standpoint in his career from 1920 to 1935, uh, we'll call it. So that 1920 to 1935 really aligned with the global expansion of the game. That's when golf tobacco cards really started to blow up, uh, you know, in, in, not just in the UK, but in the US as well. Uh, and in addition to that, yes, he's absolutely right. The Bobby Joneses, the Walter Hagens, uh, Gene Sarazen still doesn't get quite, I think he's truly underappreciated uh, from, a, from a card standpoint. Um, but the Bobby Jones and the Walter Hagens, yes, they absolutely have a premium because they are American, because uh, the uh, graded card collecting community is much more prevalent here in the States than it is overseas. And because of that, condition is much more sensitive condition is much more um uh, buyers are much more sensitive to the condition uh and that just 
drives the the prices even further for those bigger names. Awesome. Thanks, John. And uh, also thank you to Derek for the question. We'll just hit one more question from the listeners. So Tiger Woods Collector on Instagram uh, said he's just finished going through a storage unit um, and found five 1981 Donruss uncut sheets in perfect shape. Now that's, it seems like it's not at all within your area of expertise, but would you have anything to comment on Tiger Woods Collector's find in terms of maybe the population of, of an uncut sheet like that? That's a good question. So I, I, I don't know about populations of those uncut sheets. Um, I, you know, as we've talked about today, more of, of my niche is, is before 1950. However, what I will say is if they are the 1981 and not the 1982, uh, there probably is some value, uh, some value to them, uh, especially if they're in good condition. Um, I'd have him, I'd, I'd recommend he reach out to one of the, the notable golf auction houses that, that's out there. Uh, and they'll be happy to, to get uh, a little bit deeper into potential value for them. Um, uh, uncut sheets are, are always going to be rare and they're only going to get more rare. Uh, so if you can keep them in good shape, the, the value is never going to go down as long as it's not junk wax baseball from 1985 to 1994. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that that's kind of the case with anything that's old sealed wax, anything, uh, the population always goes down, uh, as people cut them, lose them in floods and fires. Um, there's a lot of bad actors out there, uh, as we've heard in the news recently, of people taking these uncut sheets, uh, and trying to cut them to the exact specifications and get high grades. Um, so yeah, that's, that's great advice. I agree mm -hmm. with what you said, John. And, um, I really look forward to having you on again, John, let's finish up with what advice would you give to a collector who wants to take their first step into pre-war or vintage in general golf cards? Uh, so two different things that, that I would recommend, um, and, and there, there are two different resources that, that I, I lean on and I use very heavily uh, myself still to this day, even with the, the collection that I've been very blessed and very fortunate to, to, to build up uh, over, these, uh, over these past few years. Uh, the first is, as everybody knows and is familiar with, eBay. Uh, but specifically, the big thing about eBay and searching for, you know, going and searching for the generic phrase golf tobacco cards that may give you a little bit of uh, of search results but the big tip that i would give everybody is go to the search filters and change the item location from your location to worldwide because when you're talking about golf tobacco cards and specifically pre-war golf cards you're talking about a lot of cards that are likely from seller coming from sellers or could be coming from sellers overseas over in the UK. So if you're only searching on eBay in your own location, you're severely limiting the number of search results you can find. Change it to worldwide and that will drastically change the the volume of the search results that you can you can search through and you can dig through. The second thing, second resource that I would I would encourage people to use is uh, Trading Card Database uh, or TCDB.com. Uh, that is a great resource if you're curious about uh, you know what years Bobby Jones had cards that that were made or uh, how many cards Gene Sarazen was was featured on. 
that website is a great resource to search for individuals, specific golfers or specific players or uh, of any sport, because you can filter by sport, search by player, and then filter down and look either by player or by set uh, and see what cards are out there. So if you're wanting to, if you know what player or what set you want to go down and look into, Trading Card Database is a great resource to, to look at. With eBay, make sure that you're searching with worldwide item listings. Well, that's really great advice. As a Canadian, uh, I just thought that was a no-brainer to set to worldwide. Or uh, another trick that we use in Canada is to change our location uh, from my home address in Canada to my American address. So I use a service called Ship My Cards. So I put the my cards account address on my eBay and it actually opens up two to three times more listings than if I say that I'm in Canada because there's so many American sellers that aren't willing to ship internationally. And it also opens up uh, listings from around the world because maybe there's sellers in China or India or wherever who aren't willing to ship to Canada for some reason, but they are willing to ship to the United States. Um, so that this international yep. mindset is ingrained in me because it if I put Canada as my only search result, I, I'm severely limited with what I can find. And I there's so many uh, of my friends and people in my local communities who just don't understand that. And they aren't necessarily in the in as deep into the hobby as we are. Uh, but that's some some great advice with with eBay. The one thing that, that one other thing I'll say is there are there are sellers on there that I buy from semi regularly that are based in, in uh, England. And if I just search, if I just pull up their profile and go to their listings, it might give me a thousand uh, you know, listings that they have. But if I then go to the filter and change that to worldwide, it will change to 10, 20, 30,000 listings for that one seller. So there are big, big dealers over there in the UK but you've got to make sure you have your search filters correct. Otherwise, you're not going to see 95% of what they have listed. Wow. Well, you heard it today. John is spilling the beans, the secrets of finding more cards worldwide. John, uh, thank you so much for joining today. This was uh, a delight. I love getting into the weeds. There's a dozen topics I want to get into with you again, but we got to cut it there just in essence of time. So thanks a Next lot. Next time. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. My pleasure. If anybody has any questions, uh, you know, as, as Mike said, I'm pretty active in the, the golf cards, the memorabilia group on Facebook. Uh, I'm also very active on, on Twitter or X, uh, just at John Morton 215, J-O-H-N-M-O-R-T-O-N 215 is my handle there. Um, always sharing, uh, always willing to help uh, fellow collectors. So reach out if you ever have any questions. Goes without saying, that the card of the week spotlight is the 1900 Copes Tom Morris. John did an excellent job describing the card already, but you can see his holy grail golf card by heading to my Instagram pages. That's at golf card collector with underscores in between and at fondling cardboard. And I'll even post some photos that John shared of his trip to St. Andrews with the young and old Tom Morris cards at the gravesite on the old course, and at the ruins of the St. Andrews Cathedral. And that brings us into Collector's Corner. I just wanted to share a couple of cards that I picked up recently. They're actually both red PMGs. That stands for Precious Metal Gems. 
The first is Will Zalatoris. And this was a cheap pickup. I was very happy to pick it up from a fellow Canadian seller. Um, I was very um, courteous and unassuming when I won the auction because it had a $14 uh, shipping price. And so I, I essentially wanted this to just be shipped letter mail for a couple of bucks and save some money. So I asked the seller, um, would you be willing to just send this for a few dollars? And the lesson that I learned was if you approach things in the most respectful way that you can and you dress someone with the utmost respect, sometimes they will give it back to you in return and you will build rapport and trust. And if they don't, it's no sweat off of your back. So in this case, um, I reached out, I was very polite, and I, I also mentioned if you're interested in golf cards because you're obviously selling golf cards, here's some different content that you could check out. So the person was receptive and, and shipped it by letter mail. So I've got the Will Zalatoris card right here. And I'm really pumped about it. For those of you who are not watching the video, uh, it is a bright red background, retro style, precious metal gems. Serial numbered out of 100 on the back. And this is actually a very unique styling. The traditional precious metal gems have this kind of like video game robotic type of styling on the back and this one has more of like a 70s nightclub vibe and um, I'll have to do some research and find out what the two different stylings are all about. So the second card is also a Precious Metal Gems red numbered out of 100. However, this one is Steve Nash. And for those of you who know me, when it comes to basketball, Steve Nash was a big inspiration of mine in playing basketball, and he's my primary PC, personal collection, when I collect basketball cards. So I saw this one pop up on auction, and actually shortly after it popped up, two more of them popped up on auction that closed a day or two later after the first one. And so I thought, I already own this card in an SGC 8.5 but if three of them have all popped up at auction at the same time, it means that whoever out there wants this card is going to have three chances to get it, and it's not going to be an aggressive situation. And I thought, this is my chance to pick up a second copy of the card. And they were all three of them were raw, and it was going to be a chance to maybe grade it as well and, and improve on my SGC 8.5 grade. And there's also this facet that I don't like to talk about a lot, but I'll mention it now, which is sort of safeguarding the cards that you love and respect, because there's nothing worse than seeing a card that you own, and, and a short printed card especially, being a Precious Metal Gems, uh, selling for a price that you don't think is, is right. You don't think it's fair, and you don't think it's fair the opposite of how you'd normally say fair. It, it's too low. And... So I, I decided I'm going to put a price out there and if, it, if I win it, I win it. If I don't, I'm not going to be unhappy. And I ended up winning the auction for, for just over half of my maximum bid. And so I'm, I'm pumped about that. Um, Steve Nash was a huge role model in my childhood. My collection's growing by the day. So one interesting aspect of that pickup is that the card would not have shown up if I put my home address into the eBay settings, since I live in Canada, and the seller only ships domestically in the United States. So, like John Morton and I talked about earlier in the Funneling Cardboard podcast, if you use a service such as Ship My Cards, which gives you a United States shipping address as a service, 
it opens up a massive world of listings and purchasing opportunities that other Canadians do not see or other international collectors do not see. It's interesting for an athlete like Steve Nash especially because aside from the Phoenix Suns fans and a handful of player collectors, Steve Nash isn't a hugely popular player across the USA, whereas he's adored from coast to coast in Canada as being our utmost talented basketball player in history. So his cards would sell for a premium in Canada, and I get an advantage by being able to see American listings on eBay. I'm not a a huge hockey guy, but I imagine basically all of you other Canadian collectors out there are, are huge hockey guys, and by using Ship My Cards, you would get access to hockey cards that other Canadians don't see. So circling back to my own experience with Ship My Cards, I've secured some of the most important golf cards in my collection by using Ship My Cards, such as my 2019 Goodwin Champions Tiger Woods autograph, depicting his 2018 Tour Championship win at Eastlake, which was a grail card, and I had been chasing it for two years, and I had my save searches and my Facebook posts um, searching for this card, and it did finally pop up from an American seller, and that seller would not ship to Canada. So without Ship My Cards, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to build the collection that I've always wanted. And I have similar stories about several other cards. Um, 2021 Upper Deck Artifacts Diamond Relics is a set that I'm very passionate about, and I wouldn't have been able to complete that set without having access to US-based sellers and countless others. So this is not a paid advertisement for Ship My Cards, but I'm happy to give them their airtime, their shout out. And if anybody does know somebody at Ship My Cards, tell them about the Fondling Cardboard podcast and... My door is always open. All right, guys, you know how these podcasts always end. I've got a thought-provoking quote that I'll be sharing with you in just a moment. But please, before I get to it, can you leave a review of the podcast, a rating, um, or whatever the, the like, subscribe features are on the platform that you're listening to? Because that really helps get my show in front of others like yourself who hopefully enjoy the show. So without further ado, my quote of the day is by Gregory Benford. And he says, the universe of artifacts was a human one. And I love the simplicity of this quote because he's saying that the universe of artifacts, all of the objects and memories that we look at from history, used to be human reality. They used to be present human reality. And by connecting with that past, like John shared in his stories. He's he's not just connecting with this piece of cardboard that came out of a tobacco product. He's connecting with those humans. He's connecting with old Tom Morris, the grand old man. He's connecting with Bobby Jones, the, the greatest amateur to ever play the game and the, the founder of the Masters. These are human beings that we connect with. So I'll leave you there, and I look forward to catching up with you next week.